Hi there, beautiful people. Welcome to Fanti, the podcast for all of those complex and complicated conversations about the gray areas in our lives. I'm Travelle Anderson. And I'm politics and pop culture journalist Jared Hill. Uh, coming up on the show today, we're talking about black straight men and the complicated relationship uh, that we have with them right now, um, especially their relationship to Black women. Um, I've invited two of my favorite two straight Black people, straight Black men, uh, to be a part of the conversation. And I think it's going to be interesting. We'll have a a different perspective. And I didn't, I just want to say to the people, I didn't invite anybody because I don't have any good straight Black men in my community. But Um. first, we're going to go to a (laughs) tough question. Um, the tough question comes from me. That tough questions are questions that are difficult to grapple with because there's really not an easy answer. And this mm-hmm. is the deal. I'm single. I'm out here. I'm doing life. Socially distant. You dipping it and doing it? I'm, I'm out here dipping it and doing it and up to things. Um, <laughs> but I've been, I've noticed that I have a growing fear, like as I'm on dating apps or like if I'm going out or, or just meeting someone um, online, and I feel really weird to say it, but like I felt it pop up more than once. What is um, it? I find that I'm increasingly scared that I'm going to like a white man mm. and then fall in love with him and then be in a relationship with him. Mm. Because I've dated almost all only black men throughout my whole life. I've literally had one white boyfriend and I've been on a date with one white person. Um, so it's not very common for me, but like, Every time, if I like match with a white man, I'm like, oh shit. How you or, doing? Like, if we start having a, if we start having a good conversation, I'm like, <sighs> and like I, like I have plenty of friends that are interracial relationships and all of those things. But like lately, after like post George mm-hmm. Floyd, I feel very nervous about. So it what's, the, what's the what's the what's the being tough... unreasonable? Okay, that's the question. Are you being unreasonable? I don't think you're being unreasonable, but I do have a question about like you know. I feel like there's a need for like a a selection screening process, similar to what we talked about a couple of episodes ago in terms of like me with the white therapist, right? And 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 screening mm-hmm. and figuring mm-hmm. out whether she would be good. I feel like you need a screening process for white folks as you are you know communicating on these apps i'm gonna tell you so i need like i need like a google form or something (laughs) not a google form but just a list of questions that you have in your arsenal that you can ask that helps you suss out where they are with the situation so you need to ask them how do you feel about the black lives matter i have a I was going to say, I have a feeling you know what these questions are already. You know, well, so I have a, I have a, a, a straight white friend. Uh, hi, Kyle. I know you're listening. Um, and these are the necessary conversations that you have to have with people who, based on their life experience, might not be able to show up for you in the ways that you need them to show up for you. Okay? Amen. How do you feel about the Black Lives Matter movement? Do you vote? How do you vote? Yeah. You know? Yeah. When when is the last See, time your whiteness, you know, made you like you made you made uh, when was the last time you were made aware of your whiteness and how did you respond to it? Mm, now these I don't know if these on. are second date or third date questions. I don't know if you can throw them in in the chat at uh, on the tenders and the and the other I apps and so stuff, much. but these are necessary conversations. Well, so like, you know, like the longstanding rule has been like, don't talk about politics and religion on a first date. And I'm like, then what the fuck are we talking about? <laughs> Why like, are we here? 
Yeah, so like, that's interesting, a screening process. I mean, other than like the vibe screening that you're like, mm, wait, what did you just say? Or what was your perspective? I don't know, I'm just, I'm matching with white men always makes me just a little bit nervous. It sounds so. very complex and complicado to me. I see what you did there. I, <laughs> it, it is complex and complicado. It's complicado, yes. Um, all right, shut up. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are talking to two cis het black men about. Child, you almost stumbled over that. All of them. Listen, I was like trying to make sure I got it right. We're going to talk to them about what the fuck is wrong with them and their brothers. Don't go anywhere, Fantas. Come back. Schmanners. Noun. Definition. Rules of etiquette designed not to judge others, but rather to guide ourselves through everyday social situations. Hello, Internet. I'm your husband host, Travis McElroy. And I'm your wife host, Teresa McElroy. Every week on Schmanners, we take a look at a topic that has to do with society or manners. We talk about the history of it. We take a look at how it applies to everyday life. And we take some of your questions. And sometimes we do a biography about a really cool person that had an impact on how we view etiquette. So join us every Friday and listen to Schmanners on MaximumFun.org or wherever podcasts are found. Manners, Schmanners. Get it? Welcome back, beautiful people. So the last few weeks, you know, and maybe my whole life, cis black men have been failing me. Um, and we're going to talk about it. <laughs> we're going to talk about it. Um, and we're going to start with talking about, you know, what's in the news currently. And there's so much talk about the situation between Megan the Stallion um, revealing and naming Tory Lanez as the person who shot her and, you know, her complex feelings about, like, why she was taking up for him initially and now how she's been getting um, a lot of, let's just call it feedback um, about that decision. Here's a clip of her sharing a bit of the details. So, since y'all so worry about it yes this Tory shot me you shot me and you got your publicists and your people going to these blogs lying and stop lying um okay so i thought this would be a great opportunity for us to bring in two straight black men if we could find them but turns out <laughs> they do exist, and two of, they're actually two of my really good friends. Um, you guys are like this, the, the straight male friends that I feel like I, I haven't had a lot of straight male friends in my adult life. Um, and like, so I was like, these are the guys that we should bring on. Uh, Seth Brundle is uh, here in Los Angeles. He is the host of the Aspire Network's Butter and Brown. And Dr. Charles Davis is a professor at Michigan and uh, is joining us from the East Coast right now. So thank you both for being here. We really appreciate it. Yes. Thanks for having, for having us. Okay, so as we talk about this Meg, Meg the Stallion moment with Tory Lanez, there's been a lot of feedback from straight black men. And I, the, the tweet that I thought personified it most perfectly for me was, or that really solidified it for me, um, was this one man, he had retweeted Meg's tweet that had said, you know, if you keep talking, I'm going to spill the tea or whatever. Uh, not those words. But then the man said to her, Megan, tell us if he shot you or not. And then the follow-up tweet said, after she said what had happened, man, Megan's a, Megan's a snitch. And I thought that was a perfect example of how, like, 
straight black men have been handling this story a lot on social media. I want to ask the two of you, what is the conversation amongst your straight black male friends about this and, and where do you fall in it? I would like to start my commentary by saying fuck Tory Lanez. Um, okay. Fuck his Amen. daddy, his homies, um, his bodyguard, his record label, the staff, and as a motherfucking crew. And if you agree with Tory Lanez, then fuck you too. Um, okay. Conversations with amongst my friends, my straight black male friends, um, is the same that it's been amongst you guys and your friends. Um, and it's along the same lines of what I just said. It's fuck Tory Lanez. There's no excuse mm -hmm. other than she had a gun to you um, to pull a gun on a woman, to put your hands on a woman, um, to put a woman in any type of environment or situation where she is unsafe and where you cause harm to her. Um, there is no explanation. And I, I that that meme that you're talking about or the, the series of tweets that you're talking about um, are for me what solidify this notion of straight black men being the white men of black people. Um, mm. He sounds like a Trump supporter. It's, I mean, it's a notion that I've been fighting for a while, but I can't, I mean, I can't, I can't defend, I can't defend my straight black male, uh, you know, brethren on this one. And this is, and that's not to say that it's all of us or the great majority of us, but there are enough of us out there defending this fuck shit. Um, you know, where I can't defend us and I can't defend the rationale. And the thing that is just mind boggling for me is we have this whole notion of her being a snitch, right? Um, and I was raised, um, you know, I was raised by a bunch of different people with a lot of different ideologies, but with this one specifically where, you know, in this situation, Megan is a snitch for, you know, speaking her truth and what happened to her and her being the victim of, you know, this heinous crime by a friend or a boyfriend or whatever this situation was, because I wasn't following it that that closely. It makes me wonder what what this code is. So by your mm. if, if by your rationale, Megan Thee Stallion is a snitch because she essentially told the truth about being shot by a male friend or companion of hers. What what does that make Tory for you guys? Um, does that mm -hmm. mean you guys were going to handle this situation? Does that mean, um, you know, Tory was going to get DP? Um, you know, he was going to get disciplined. Uh, were the big homies uh, in, in, in rap in the industry going to take him behind closed doors and beat the shit out of him and make an example? What, what's the code? If, make, make, if mm -hmm. Megan is a, a snitch, okay. I don't agree with you at all, but keep going. What's the code? What would it that then mm -hmm. make Tory for number one pulling a gun out on a woman? Or number one, uh having such a fragile ego for you know reacting mm -hmm. the way they did to whatever she said to him, did to him. I'm sure Megan has a slick tongue. We've heard her music <laughs> we probably cut into the deepest part of him, you know, so his ego couldn't handle it. Um, you know, so for Tori to have such a fragile ego, ego, for him to pull a gun on the woman, for him to th the woman, and then for him to then go and shoot the woman, what does that make him? That's my mm -hmm. question. Yeah. And so question I, I haven't found an answer for. That's a, an interesting perspective. Um, 
what what was what is Tori's participation uh, in the whole thing is, is interesting. Um, Charles, what is the conversation that you've been hearing amongst your Black straight male friends? Uh, so I would say if I was in closer community with more of them, it would probably be very similar, right? I can imagine being at the barbershop and what the discourse would be. Um, as somebody who's a new parent and we're in a pandemic, that's just not a real part of my every day. Uh, but also the primary circles that I tend to be in um, these days are people that have like a similar politic, uh, right? Which I think is part of, you know, your uh, investment in inviting us into this conversation. And so a lot of the men that I've chosen to surround myself with, I don't think engage in a similar discourse, although we certainly benefit from and participate and even are complicit in various forms of misogyny. Um, but I do turn to sort of like a broader conversation on places like Twitter just ever so often, because uh, I wasn't really in the middle of like what had happened. I heard that there was like this, you know, thing floating around that Tory Lane shot uh, Meg The Stallion. And then I saw that there was some rebuttal and back and forth. And then I saw like people, you know, retweeting and quote tweeting. Um, and so for me, it was just, you know, this pervasive discourse that happens anytime a situation like this arises that goes with a long history of generations of black women that have chosen to spare black men the rod of the state, right? Um, and so to me, it was just like, but another situation in which uh, black women um, really are like taken advantage of and, and exploited. And, you know, when I was tweeting about it, um, a lot of this was framed in this notion that we often co-opt their solidarity, tenderness, and compassion as some trope of like being a ride or die chick, right? And like that to mm. me is something that we have to really like problematize uh, because it's almost like the suffering becomes a necessary requirement for us to accept the humanity of black women, so right? I, I, I want to keep you right there. I don't want to cut you off, but I, what you just said really triggered something that we brought up on a, on a previous show um, when we, we talked to Drew Dixon uh, from the film uh, On the Record. She's the woman who uh, had the, the situation with Russell Simmons. And so they talk about in the documentary that black women will be harmed by straight black men and then also have this, this uh, sense of attachment to their protection as well. And I think Meg was a perfect example of that in the way that she said, even when the doctors came, right? When the ambulance came, I didn't know if they were police or not or who, and I was still lying on your behalf. And this is moments after you've shot me. And that really, really stuck with me that, I, that like it really spoke exactly to what, what I felt like Drew Dixon was saying in the documentary and what we've heard so many other black women talking about. When you hear that, like, what does that bring up for you as a straight black man? Um, and, I, and you are both married, I should say, you both have uh, wives. Talk to me about what that brings up for you. Charles, I'll let you go first. I mean, for me, it's really wrestling with this very notion of betrayal, right? Like the notion of snitching fundamentally is about sort of betrayal and in this context of betrayal to your race. And I think to Seth's point, right? Like we don't have the same standard of accountability for black men, right? And so like using that ride or die metaphor, it's like every nigga wants a ride or die bitch, you know, as, as, as the saying goes, but like most of us would neither ride nor die for them unless it converged with our own self-interest. Right. And like, I think mm. this is something that we have to be honest about. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's thinking about the extent to which we don't put women and femme identified folks in this situation. Right. Especially like our partners and those with whom we're in closest proximity. Um, but we have to stop sort of conflating this notion of like the truth being told and seeking extrajudicial accountability. Right. Because snitching is about telling the feds or the police or whoever, you know, in a certain situation. But like some level of accountability. Uh, for the harm that's done, whether that's restorative in its, in its nature, right, is not the same as snitching, right? It's just fundamentally different. Um, and so we shouldn't sort of have this expectation that they're silent or that we can silence them about the harm that we cause 
um, as some perverse sense of racial solidarity, right? Because the real betrayal is what we've done to them and then asked them to be silent about. That's the fundamental betrayal, in my opinion. And so for me as a partner, you know, I try to do my best to ensure that I'm not putting my partner, my wife in a situation where that would ever have to be the case, uh, right? And, and really, I think it's about accountability for us, a sense of ownership and, and really sort of chipping away at this uh, sort of fuckboy fragility, if I can call it that, um, right? Of like how we sort of construct these notions of manhood that actually can't stand the test of any sort of duress when we're uh, attempting to be held accountable for our actions. The only additional thing that I would add to that is it makes me personally feel like we fail black women uh, for having to for having to carry that and for always having to choose between their womanhood and their blackness. You know, their and their blackness, mm -hmm. their security and their blackness. And in in that sense, we have really and truly failed them. And you know, going back to this whole scenario and um and conversation around street politics and how we as black men govern ourselves i think there's just a larger conver conversation that has to be had and we have to redefine what all these things mean to us like charles said like this whole notion of snitching and what what the real definition of what that that term started off meaning for us in our communities that has to be redefined because the the true definition has been lost. Definition mm -hmm. of you know not snitching, not telling the police, not involving the feds, you know, to protect ourselves and our communities for crimes committed that have not affected us personally, um, that affect the outside world, outside communities. That has to be redefined. Um, so, in that sense, the only thing I would add to what Charles said is that we we fail black women in that respect to put them, to constantly put them in situations where they have to choose between their womanhood, their safety, their sense of security and their blackness and prioritize their blackness over, you know, protecting themselves and their own preservation. Can I add something to that sure. just quickly? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I appreciate what Seth said in terms of, you know, our failure to, to black women and femme identified folks. But I also think like we fail each other on a regular basis, Yeah. right? Like we constantly let like homeboys get away with doing shit and letting stuff slide, right? Whether it's like commentary or being a bystander during cat calling um, or being well-known uh, people in our circle that are abusers and doing nothing to intercede or intervene, right? Like we allow for Amen. women to be mo more vulnerable in that situation, but we don't check each other. And I think that's a fundamental failure of being in proper community and right relationship with each other as black men, right? It's almost as if cowardice is something like sort of in relation to snitching that we despise, yet it's also the thing that we let define us more than anything else, right? Um, and that's often why we take out so many different forms of our emotional and mental uh, sort of stressors on the more vulnerable people in you know our circles, which tend to be women, femme identified folks, queer folks, right? Like again, that's sort of a hallmark of, of black masculinity under a system of white supremacy. Um, and so I think it's also just a failure to us and ourselves for when we say we are our brother's keeper and we're not, right? We're not. We're basically like there to sort of encourage and to uh, sort of be an echo chamber for the things that we know that are not right, things that we wouldn't want to have happen to the women in our closest proximity, right? Our mothers, our sisters, our daughters. And yet we don't sort of extend that notion uh, to, to ourselves. And so we have to really wrestle again with these double standards uh, of what it means to actually provide good love to each other. And that accountability, uh, you know, really requires that love to be something that uh, looks like justice in public. 
Um, I want to ask. I want to take a step back for each of you and ask you like about your own personal like uh, uh, process of masculinity formation. Like, how did you learn? Slash, who taught you? Right, what it means to be a man. What it what it means to 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 stand up in in your manhood. This for all three of y'all's. I credit my father. My father was a, a shining example of what I deem to be um, what I deem the true true meaning of being a man is, and that's defined by the imprint that you leave on this planet, the people that um, that you surround yourself with, and you know how you take care of your responsibility. It's not it's not about your sexuality. It's not about how many women you've bedded. It's not about, you know, how much, how many weights you can lift in all of those superficial things that we've attached to our masculine identities. Um, my father was, he had zero tolerance for any type of abuse toward women. One of my earliest memories is my older brother getting the shit beat out of him because he hit a girl on the playground when he was in fifth grade and I was in third grade. I remember being in the bathroom, taking a bath myself, my brother and my father coming home and hearing the whole thing. Because my dad, there was always, we got home, mm -hmm. we got settled. Um, you know, my dad would go upstairs. He would grab this thick brown leather belt that he had with feet imprinted on it. And then we would get a lecture. We would get like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it was a scary thing. Even thinking about that thing too. Why do all black parents have like the special belt? I, like they I don't, don't wear it ever. He never yes. wore it. He never, ever, <laughs> it is ever only for ass whooping. It that is whooping belt. Yes. Yes. Is and it's not enough to wrap it and have some for you. Exactly. <laughs> Our father's got the, the same belt from the same black dad belt. Clearly. <laughs> I think you get it once you become a dad after a certain Right. They used belt to belt issue it in the 80s like, and here is your dad belt. Come back, guys. Um, Come back. Come back. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't someone who ever struck us, hit us, beat us out of anger. You know, he would always start off with, this hurts me more than it hurts you. He explained what it was that we did wrong. And my dad just, he was very adamant about th that. Um, and there were, you know, a couple of things that he was very adamant about when we were growing up. But he was very adamant about never putting your hands on, never disrespecting, never tearing down women, ever. Um, so he was the foundation for my my entire identity of masculinity you know jared knows me best of the four of you um you know i am a i am a chef i am a media personality i am a former wardrobe stylist um i'm not into sports at all um i could probably name any athlete because sports is just a part just as much a part of the fabric of pop culture as anything else now so we know who every athlete is who they're fucking you know who their baby mamas are and different things like that but I am someone who doesn't necessarily have a traditionally masculine identity, traditionally masculine interests, traditionally masculine, um, you know, even even the way that I, 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 I carry myself. You know what I mean? And my dad never shamed me for any of my interests. He always pushed me to go into fashion. He always pushed me to go to design school. He always pushed me to embrace my passion for cooking. He he, he never ridiculed me or made me feel um like less of a man because I didn't want to watch a basketball game with them or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever the case was. My, my father was always supportive of who I was and how I identified. Um, so that stuck with me. And even, even in the way that, you know, I raised my son, um, you know, he has a doll that, uh, that my sister-in-law's mother bought him. 
um, you know, in terms of his interests and what toys that he likes to play with and different things like that. I carried that over into my own fatherhood, um, you know, in my own experience today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Charles, what about for you? Um, so I would sort of echo that, right? Like, I think, you know, having a, a present father um, is definitely someone you look to because of the sort of homosocial bonds that we sort of, uh, you know, develop and socialize boys into. And so I learned a ton of things as, you know, a son of someone who came of age in Tuskegee, Alabama in the 50s, went to Tuskegee Institute, uh, was an officer in the military. So much of what I understood about being a man, um, being a black man in a white world was from him. Um, and there were also a lot of things that I didn't learn in terms of just like tenderness, compassion that I learned from black women, foremost, my mother and other black women um, in my life. But then also as, you know, someone who's a professor, like really it came about through like deep study and reading and then also being in community with folks who didn't identify mm. the way that I did, right? Like I never saw myself and, and I think I was taught, you know, from a, a base level that you just like respect everybody as a human being, but um, I never saw myself as being like, you know, uh, participatory in like homophobia in particular kinds of ways. Although in retrospect, I know that I was certainly complicit, right? There's like plenty of things I never stood up for, never interceded about. Um, and so I really think it's also through the labor of queer folks, uh, Black women, um, writers like Patricia Hill Collins, Kimberly Crenshaw, so many other people that helped shepherd me into understanding sort of a broader sense of self that I just didn't know was possible. Um, and and I think as a result of that, too, finding other men who were in that conversation who did, you know, identify as cisgender, who were heterosexual, who sort of showed me and demonstrated and like provided permission to be something other than what I could have chosen to be. Uh, right was really intimately a part of that. And that sort of goes to my point about whether we can fail each other, or whether we can actually do right by each other. Um, and I think there's, you know, also one particular experience that really helped me in college. And I was dating uh, this young woman at the time. And I remember uh, at some point in the evening, you know, we were having a conversation and she said to me, um, like, you know, you're not the nice guy that you think you are. And that was sort of like this badge of honor reputation, right? They're like, oh, I'm not like these other niggas. That's kind of like the whole MO, mm-hmm. which maybe that's being a light-skinned Kappa. I don't know. Okay. Probably so. Very much being right. a light-skinned Kappa. But, that is exactly what that, that is. But that was sort of this notion of differentiation <laughs> that like, I'm going to be straight up with you. Like, it's going to be above board, whatever's going on. But, you know, she was, she was saying like, look, you niggas are all after the same thing at the end of the day. So like, what makes you any different than anyone else? And it really like put into perspective mm. that, there's no right way to do the wrong thing, right? Mm. Um, and in this case, we're talking about like the sort of the sexual conquest, if you will. Um, and so that really helped me sort of interrogate a lot about what I thought was true about how I couldn't just be different from like other people, right? Like I have to fundamentally mm-hmm. be different and change. And the last thing I'll say is that my partner um, has been huge at this particular point uh, over the last six years of us being together, now being married. Um, uh, and, and this is the thing that I don't know that she necessarily did intentionally or not, but like she made me accountable for my politics because she met me at a point where, you know, I'm like writing and speaking and doing all these things already as, a, as an adult. Um, and there were so many things about how our upbringings were very different, about our relationships to people and to relationships and to our bodies were very different, um, that her just being who she was in a space made me have to be accountable for the shit that I was writing, saying and professing everywhere else. And I'm big on like, Mm. it doesn't matter what you say and do to the rest of the world if everyone in your proximity sees and experiences you in a different way. And so every part of our relationship at every step of the way, even now as a father, um, she holds me accountable in ways just by being who she is that sort of pushes me to think about what is the best version of myself and in what ways can I be more free than I've ever been before as a result of being true to that. Really quickly, before we move on from this, you and your wife use the term as partner as opposed to husband and wife a lot more than the other. What I mean, you are husband and wife, I guess, under the eyes of the state, but you guys use the term partner. Why is that? Um, 
so for me, it was sort of this notion of not needing to sort of gender, like sort of aspects of our role definition. And I think husband and wife often come with specific connotations, right? About like who's supposed to do what and how you're supposed to show up. Um, and so for me, it was thinking of that as like a true partnership that we were primarily determining like what that would look like, mm. sort of irrespective of the expectation of society of determining what husbands do, what wives do, or really in this notion of like love as a sort of aspect of freedom rather than like ownership. Right. And I think so much of that got sort of commodified in the terminology. Uh, but more recently, it's also been sort of thinking through whether that in and of itself becomes a co-optation of how people who are in like same gender loving relationships also think and identify with themselves. Um, so it's kind of this like, I don't know, interesting tangle. But for me, I think partner more so defines like what we're doing together in this sort of aspect of life making and that we are partners and that we're co-constructing that and uh, sort of building our own boundaries and parameters of what that would look like. Interesting. OK. Um, yeah. So. It's interesting. We I knew we were going to talk about this today. Like, how how are we taught to be a man and all that? And when we wrote it down to do, I thought like eh, I don't really know what the answer to that is, but I'll get to that. And then as we've been talking about it, I'm thinking like, it's interesting to me that I remember when I came out to my mom and I told her that I was gay and like we were having all these conversations. Um, she said to me that you know she was wondering if it was because her and my dad divorced and like if him leaving had something to do with that. And I told her, I was like, well, you guys divorced when I was nine and I liked the boy when I was six. So like that math doesn't work. Um, my parent, my dad left when I was six, but like we still saw him every other weekend, oftentimes I should say. Um, and like, it was difficult because I always felt like I was always like trying to get his attention. Um, and he, you know, wasn't, always there right and so i know that that's showing up for me in my relationships but i know that i have when i think about like the ways that i learned to be a man i was still looking at him even like in the the spurts that i would see him and like it was him and my uncle um and like they were the guys right they would barbecue they would fix cars they would watch sports they would do all of those things but like rarely did those things interest me and so it was a weird thing for me to try and like try to reach a bar that like I was not going to reach, um, but also that I, I mm -hmm. didn't really want to reach either, right? Like, I mean, sure, I could watch mm -hmm. the game or sure I could, you know, help you fix the car or whatever, but like, I really wanna go watch this design show <laughs> or, you know, I'm really interested in grating this cheese right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like whatever it was. And it wasn't even necessarily gendered things, right? But just like <laughs> things that I was interested in that my dad was not. And so it's interesting to hear you guys talk about those things because it's something that I, I feel like I want to sit with a little bit more um, and figure out for myself. Because I remember thinking like the person who taught me how to tie a tie was Brody Van Coten in, in 12th grade because we had a, a thing coming up and I couldn't tie the tie. The person who taught me how to shave was my stepdad like when I was an adult. Um, and like those kinds of things, like the person who taught me how to drive was my uncle. And it wasn't that my dad wasn't present. It was just like, it was just kind of spread out in a different kind of way. And so I think I got my messages mm -hmm. about manliness, like from a bunch of different places that maybe weren't as centralized as they might've been otherwise. So anyhow, um, mm -hmm. okay. We want to really quickly go through some of these other situations that have happened rapid fire style. Cause we're almost out of time. Um, and talk to you guys about, um, what you've heard and how, how it, what it brought up for you. So, um, let's go to Dwayne Wade and Zaya Wade. I'm, I've been fascinated by watching them as they've, as Dwayne has, you know, become 
much more public as a father since Mary and Gabrielle Union. What is the conversation you guys hear about them? Like, how has that, what has that been like? Um, I mean, most of that conversation, honestly, has been with folks like yourself. So it's been, uh, you know, I, I think complex, but also um, one that has like nuance to it, right? I think there's also been other spaces where I've heard things for sure in certain spaces um, about, you know, and I think this actually goes to a point that you were making that we're all kind of talking about it, this notion of like what fathering your sons fucking means, mm. right? Or just like mm -hmm. fathering in and of itself and who's responsible for fathering and other fathering and other aspects of the community. Um, and so the conversation has been, um, you know, interesting to, to say the least. And I think there's one camp that says, you know, oh, you're not fathering your son if this is what happens, right? And I think that points to the question that, you know, maybe some mothers ask, like, is this because your dad left that you've turned out this way, um, right? And we don't think about the consequences of often like even having present fathers, but not the best fathers at that. Um, but for me, it's also elevated a conversation with folks uh, that, that I know who have also had children recently um, of seeing, again, sort of another model of like a cisgendered man who uh, has committed himself to like learning and knowing that he doesn't know everything about everything, right? And sort of being deferential and really holding space, or at least what I'm interpreting as holding space for your child to be exactly who they need to be, whatever that may be, right? I think that one thing I've learned about being a father at this point is that you have two sort of main duties is that you need to sort of love and, and protect your child at all times. And part of what that means to me is creating the space so that they can be whoever it is that they wanna be and to provide them avenues and options and choices to ensure that that is made possible. Right, not to be some version of them that I think is best for them or that represents my legacy better. Um, and so I think that we're seeing uh, Indy Wade, someone who's obviously you know grown up in sport and in sport in a particular kind of way, plays the game a particular kind of way, um, and has expectations put on him in a particular kind of way, actually be deeply invested in what Bell Hooks would call like black male refusal. Right, this notion of like I don't have to be this version that you're ascribing to me, that I can be the version that's best for the people that are in my life. Uh, because that's what fathering ultimately is, right? Our parenting in general is that we show up for people through love and protection. Um, well, Seth, I, I guess I want to get your your take in terms of like the ways you've seen these conversations pop up in your spaces around um, something that I talk about a lot is like the transphobia that black men specifically um, carry out on primarily other black people, black trans women um, to be specific. Um, in what ways have has that conversation shown up in, in your circles? The conversations have uh, have been the same as they would if you and I were having a private conversation. Um, my best, my closest uh, cis male straight friends um, are aligned in terms of their thinking about trans women, about, you know, Zaya Wade, about, uh, you know, any anything along those lines. Um, positive feedback, um, and I think there's just an overwhelming sense of, I know for me personally, and I know my boys share the same sentiments for me, there's just an overwhelming sense of joy on Zaya's behalf, um, being the product of, you know, a father and a household where I was allowed to be free and allowed to be my authentic self. I know how powerful and impactful that can be. Um, so I think for myself and, you know, for my boys, I think we've just, you know, when we have conversations about it and it comes up, we're just overjoyed for the Wade family and for Zaya more specifically and the fact that she's able to grow up in an environment like that with a father who, you know, was at the top of his game, the most popular sport in our country, the most hyper-masculine environment, you know, you can think of you know, is that supportive on such a such a prominent platform of his daughter and, you know, 
of her identity and the way that, you know, she, she presents and, you know, she, she identifies. I have one last question for for both of you as we wrap sure. up. Sure. Um, what do you see as like a, a or if you see at all any responsibility to show up for you know any of these different types of communities that we've spoken about? Like you both say that like your own personal circles, you feel like your politics are aligned, and you know perhaps you're having these conversations. But like, do you feel a responsibility? to, you know, come out and advocate outside of your circle, right, in support of Megan or Zaya or Black trans women or anything like that. Charles, you're you're nodding your head. Yeah, I mean, I, I tell people all the time, like, you know, for people that know me as an organizer, an activist, or whatever they want to call it, um, I always tell people, like, the most important aspect of that work for me is not just holding in line against white supremacy. It's actually working with other Black men, right, to sort of interrogate and to push back against these sort of deeply homophobic, transphobic, sexist notions and to produce better Black men, right? Like that work is so critical because we actually undermine our efforts to create racial solidarity when we allow these things to persist, right? This is partly like why we can't get nowhere as a people and why we can't have nice things, right, is because we allow for these things to continue to chip away at our ability to be in solidarity with one another. Um, And so I think that is like the foremost aspect of the work that's important to me and why I spend so much sort of time outside of what I do in the academy, working with young Black men, whether it's through you know the fraternity sector where I sort of help run our undergraduate leadership academy, or even in just like everyday discourses on stoops and in barbershops like on the block, um, that that for me is like the stuff that's the most important. And so I actually try to do uh, as much as possible to get outside of that echo chamber where everybody's sort of in agreement, um, and that we make commitments to be in these spaces, right? Instead of just retreat, because I also know that I'm more safe in that space than someone who isn't you know considered uh, that space to be safe to have to self advocate, right? And so it's like using my power and my privilege to take that space and hopefully create more space for an honest and and serious conversation. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to do that, right? That's, I think, our base level obligation. If we say that Black Lives Matter, that all of them have to matter, and we have to make sure that we ensure their mattering happens in spaces that devalue them constantly. I absolutely agree, and I do feel a sense of personal responsibility to hold not only myself, but, you know, all the Black men around me accountable for their ideals, so... Last question, Charles, since you have the doctor in your name, uh, I'm going to let you have this last question because you brought this up a little bit, but I wanted you to kind of pull it out a little bit more specifically um, because you teach on race and you're an activist and you do so many different things. How does white supremacy contribute um, or frame this relationship between cishet men and black women and femmes? Uh, I think deeply, right? Uh, So much of our sort of survival as black men under a system of chattel slavery uh, was sort of, you know, uh, necessitated a certain performance of masculinity that may or may not have been consistent with performances other places, right? Um, And so for me, I think that there's something unique about the role that colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade um, and white supremacy in general that's through a male or a white, you know, male patriarchal lens, lends to this notion of needing to find acceptance and survival. And so when I think about you know, the circumstances and conditions that create Black men that engage and act in certain ways, right? I don't say that we don't have any agency in that situation, but what I will say is that someone created that, right? We often talk about this notion of what, uh, you know, it means to have a radical imagination and to sort of dream and envision a world that does not yet exist. And for many people, that seems impossible, right? That we can like envision a world in which we all can be free. But what I try to push people to think about is that we exist in someone's radical imagination right now, right? Like there were people who literally imagined the notion of being able to take our bodies to take our people from one place to another to steal that land from uh, people that were already there and say that they discovered it and then put us into bondage to drive the economy of this nation. 
Um, and so I think there's a deep uh, sort of level of responsibility that has to be attributed to the role that white supremacy plays, because in many ways, black men try to mirror and mimic what white men do in hopes of having some sort of level of freedom, right, as a result of their proximity to white men, right, or in, engaging in those mm-hmm. behaviors, only to ultimately see their demise as a result of trying to perform those very same ways, right? Like, this is sort of the same reason that black men are uh, cast in a particular way as inherently violent, right, that their bodies are weapons, right, because we perform masculine in the same way that our white counterparts do, uh, that we are already seen as weapons that the police then have to euthanize, right? Or society has to euthanize and expose to premature death. So I think that has to be a part of the conversation. But then we have to say to ourselves, we're actually engaged in resistance, right? If we want to be free, then we have to push back against those narratives, those ways of being, those ways of knowing and doing that fundamentally we may not be responsible for uh, in in terms of their genesis, but we are responsible for undoing them and uh, reducing harm. Well, all right. I think that's a great way for us to wrap it up. let the church say <laughs> I really amen. Appreciate, uh, you guys taking time to be available um, to do this uh, with us. Uh, before you go, Seth, tell people where they can find out uh, the work that find out about the work that you're doing and follow you. You can follow me and find me everywhere at Seth Prundle. My website, my social media handles, everything is Seth Prundle. And your show is on Aspire. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, you can find. On the socials and the interwebs at Seth Brundle, you can check out my show, Butter and Brown, on Aspire TV, uh, Amazon, and iTunes. You can check out my show, Seasoned, on BuzzFeed, on Cocoa Butter, BuzzFeed Food, Tasty, and uh, everything else I do is on Instagram. (laughs) So, yeah. All right. And uh, Charles, tell people where they can uh, find more about you and the work that you're doing. Uh, yeah, you can find me at HF Davis on Twitter and Instagram and my website, hfdavis.com. All right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. But before we go, we want to know what you all think about this. I, I really want to hear from Black women this week about what they think about the conversation that we just had. I have a feeling this will not be the last. That means all the white people don't say <laughs> nothing this week. This is not This is not your week. I'm just kidding. <laughs> sort not- of. But also that, right? Um, no, but yes, you can tweet at us or send us an email um, at Fanti Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, Fanti at MaximumFun.org if you want to shoot us an email. I'm really interested about what Black women have to say about this one. Uh, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we've got your feedback. We've got dishonorable mentions. Don't go anywhere. Fanti's back in a moment. If you're looking for a new comedy podcast, why not try the Beef and Dairy Network? It won Best Comedy at the British Podcast Awards in 2017 and 2018. Also, I'm... There were no horses in this country until the, the mid to late 60s. Specialist bovine arse vet. Both of his eyes are squid's eyes. Yogurt buffet. She was married to a bacon farmer who saved her life. Farm-raised snow leopard. True. Download it today. That's the Beef and Dairy Network podcast from MaximumFun.org. Also, maybe start at episode one, or weirdly, episode 36, which for some reason requires no knowledge of the rest of the show. Okay, beautiful people, welcome back to Fanti. We're going to get into our section called Listener Feedback, where y'all tell us what we did wrong. Or or what you love. It's not always what we did wrong. (laughs) Uh, Yes, this letter comes from uh, someone who heard our Democratic voting episode last week um, and uh, had a lot of feelings. A lot, a lot of thoughts. Of thoughts. Uh, we're calling this person John W. because they asked to not be um, to be uh, identified because they work in the party. 
Um, they talked about loving the show and all that, and they enjoyed a lot of the conversation. However, there was something missing, they felt. Um, John says, a more complete, honest truth might explain how the Democratic Party is but one institution in a larger governing ecosystem that is chiefly designed to serve white supremacy. Wow, we're back there again. How all our institutions have fallen short of the democracy's commitment to black and queer people and how among our political institutions, particularly uh, the Democratic Party has served as one of the only imperfect conduits by which black people, women, queer people and others have been able to have any considerable say in our nation's government or collective future. He went on to say, and this too is only made possible by generations of black people and others who work to create space in the Democratic Party for a vision of a more just and equitable country, even if the space is still not yet sufficient. There was one more piece later on in the email that I thought was important uh, from his email. He says, any assessment of the Democratic Party's shortcomings in upholding our country's obligations to Black people that doesn't wrestle with this reality that the Republican Party is replete with punk bitches working overtime in bad faith to ruin our country <laughs> is only attempting to balance half of the equation at best. Uh, John, I appreciate your email. I think you're right. I think that um, we did we did lean into the negative, into the the anti, if you will, of the fan and the anti last week. Um, and I, I we we didn't well, really. I don't think we talked about like the other uh, aspects of the of the the other competing factors, right? Like the Republican Party, because I, I in, in his letter he talks about. Um, how, you know, Republicans, are, their whole goal is to shut down government and for, to make government not work. Um, and a perfect example right. of that, uh, I mean, there's myriad examples of that, but he talks about how, you know, during the Affordable Care Act, they fought and tooth and nail with Democrats about um, all of the different provisions mm -hmm. and Democrats moved all the way, you know, into what we have now. And then when it came time to vote, not a single one of them voted for it, right? So they're there to slow down the processes and to do all of these different things. And so, John, I believe you're right. I think your uh, your letter was a little lengthy, but we appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, I would just add, I, I, I think it's a yes. This is a, one of those yes and mm -hmm. moments, right? It's a yes. And the thing that sticks with me most from the interview with, with Mervyn was when he said, you know how sometimes like when we don't grapple like when we're when we're making decisions and we're making comparisons between you know the two parties and we look at democrats versus republicans yes the democrats are you know shining examples right of what what you know political engagement should look like but when you grapple when you delve down into specifically the the political party right it's not um in the words of john w it's not yet sufficient right to hold i think the the expansiveness of what black identity queer identity um woman identity needs in this particular moment but you know thank you john for your your thoughts your comments your concerns and for listening <laughs> we really appreciate it um and now we're going to get into our dishonorable mentions yes that's right which it it's time for our dishonorable mentions <laughs> these are the stories do you want me to do it because you can do it Oh, Go on. You know the story. These are the stories of people that caught our attention this week that deserve a call out either. Y'all see, this is what good. I gotta deal with every week. Either for their good or for their stupid. Um, I will go first and say um, the story that I'm having a difficult time with uh, even engaging this time around is Jacob Blake, um, the man in Wisconsin who was shot in the back by police. I'm not getting into the details of it. Um, I just want to say that 
I am, I'm having a really difficult time engaging it, to be honest. I have not watched the video. Yeah. I have avoided the details of that story. Um, I was on the phone with a friend on Sunday night when the video had first come out and he was saying that he'd just seen it and he was enraged. And I was like, I'm gonna do everything I can to not watch it. Um, I have to talk about it on CNN this evening. So I have to engage it, you know, at some point today, but it's just a really difficult, frustrating story. And I just want to send prayers to him and his family. Uh, as of the time that we are recording, he has survived the shooting, um, but reports are that his, he's paralyzed from um, the waist down. So you can Google Jacob Blake and find out more information on that story. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. In other news of white people doing some fuck shit, um, to we, we record on Tuesdays, as you all know, and um, there was a situation in the art world where the Whitney Museum, which is like, you know, one of the canonical institutions of art, um, quote unquote, acquired works from black and black queer and trans artists via print sales that have been happening during the COVID time. Uh, these pre print sales, are, to explain it just a little bit, are when these artists, you know, put up copies of their work that people can buy at significantly reduced rates, right, in favor of, you know, funds going to to some of the bail funds across the country or going to some, you know, trans-led organizations. And um, it was discovered by a couple of people, uh, uh, I guess a series of people, that the Whitney Museum was staging this exhibit Full of work that they had quote unquote acquired from these print sales. Oh wow! These print sales, people were selling these. Ex you see the problem? They were selling these prints for about a hundred dollars, right? It's one of the methods uh, that is done to like kind of democratize and and spread the wealth in terms of who can participate in the act of art buying. But the Whitney Museum, an institution that has all of this money available for the purpose of so acquiring they just like went work, to art.com and bought prints of them and then hung up the art. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I gave a a, uh, honorable mention to See in Black, which was this collective of Black mm. artists that got together, Black photographers, visual narrators, that got together to provide work, and all of the sales from that work went to Black-led organizations. They went into sales like that, bought copies, I believe almost 80 folks' work, and was going to put on a an exhibit a virtual exhibit, I guess maybe in-person exhibit as you well, with their work. And Monday evening, they reached out to these visual narrators asking them for information. And it's since caused a whole hollabaloo. Um, the, 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 you know, visual narrators, you know, got up in arms, released various statements. The Whitney Museum, as of this recording, has canceled the 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 exhibit in light of all of the, the feedback that they've been getting. I don't know how that you think that's okay to do. Like, this... It's morally bankrupt is what it is. That is crazy. It is completely morally bankrupt. It makes me bankrupt. think about how whenever there's, like, a, an uprising that gets called riots and looting, how there's always, like, a set of memes that go around talking about how our museums are full of shit that was looted from... from all exactly. of these different lands. So, wow, I did not know that story. That is fucking crazy. Okay, we got to move quickly. Um, I want to shout out Mike mm -hmm. Hill, who you might know as uh, the fiance or husband of Cynthia Bailey. From Real Housewives yes. of Atlanta? Cynthia? Yeah. Is, are they married now or are they still engaged? They have not married. That's they right. fiance. Well, I think they pushed it. Yeah, they, they have a I wedding. Think they in pushed the future. it back because they're. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Mike Hill, his new book has come out today. Uh, it's called Open Mike. And uh, it is him talking about his 
life as we're talking about all these cis het black men today. Um, and so I, I wanted to lift up that book. It's also published by a black off uh, publishing house called 13th and Joan, uh, run by Audrey Ori, who really focuses on uh, celebrating uh, this black storytelling. So um, congratulations to them because the, the book came out this week and I just got my copy in the mail. I wanted to shout out um, for an honorable mention, the reporters of the Los Angeles Times who worked on the Chicano moratorium retrospective. It was a special section of the paper um, dedicated to looking back on um, what's called the Chicano moratorium. So um, I'm going to quickly read this. On August 29th, 1970, more than 20,000 demonstrators marched through East LA for the National Chicano Moratorium against the Vietnam War. The protests for peace devolved into conflict between demonstrators and sheriff's deputies. By day's end, hundreds were arrested and trailblazing Latino journalist Ruben Salazar was dead. The events and emotions of that chaotic day still reverberate in LA's Latino community 50 years later, and it's a really amazing kind of deep dive into the impact of that demonstration um, on the community today. So check it out um, online. We'll have it linked in our show notes. Um, And if you can get you a paper copy, definitely do that as well. I'm going to give my last honorable mention to uh, a political candidate. Uh, we, we talked a lot about politics here last week. And uh, I want to shout out Jamie Harrison, who is running for the uh, U.S. Senate in South Carolina. He is running to unseat Lindsey Graham, who is a big old box of trash. Um, you guys can find out more information about Jamie Harrison as, as we're in the, you know, the 70-ish days uh, to the election. But um, he is running to unseat um, Lindsey Graham, as I said, he is a, he seems to be a really, really great guy. And I have, I made a donation. So I want to be uh, transparent about that. Um, but I, I think he's really, really got a great chance of beating Lindsey Graham uh, in the fall. And I'm, I'm hoping that we can get rid of Lindsey Graham. Can you make a donation to me? No. No, <laughs> me being here as a donation. Um, <laughs> wow. My last honorable mention has to go to black contestants on game shows and reality competitions. Wait, what? Okay. Just generally, if you have ever been a black contestant on a game show or reality competition, I thank you for your service, for your entertainment. Because, you know, black folks move through these spaces just differently than white folks. And I always find it entertaining. It always gives me somebody to root for. I recently restarted uh, uh, watching The Amazing Race. And the season I started with, you know, the, the black mother and daughter couple just, they just got kicked off the show, eliminated from the show. And I was just like, oh. Now I'm going to change seasons and find some, another season with black folks so that I can root for. It's so funny because whenever I'm watching a game show, if there's a black person, I'm automatically rooting for them. If there is a series, like uh, there's a show where they're like featuring different stories, like the Say I Do show, I'm mm-hmm. like, where are the black couples? Where are the queer couples? <laughs> like, I'm all, I always automatically do that. It's so funny you said that. All right. I think that's it for us. Um, that is a show. It um, is. Before we go, I want to uh, shout out April Ryan. I'm going to be doing her show uh what will be Tuesday night, but it'll be available on Instagram live um, thereafter. We're going to be doing a live on Instagram following Melania Trump's speech tonight uh, to the Republican National Convention. And uh, I'll be talking with her about the speech in the last four years. Um, And so, yeah, you can check that out on Instagram live. I'll make sure to include a link in the episode description um, after that. Do you have anything coming up you want to talk about? 
Nope, I'm regular Daglish Magula. Thank you all so much for joining us this week. As always, you can give us feedback at our uh, iTunes reviews, five-star reviews, please and thank you. If you have a comment or suggestion about this week's show or any other week's show, tweet at us or Instagram us at Fanti Podcast, or you can send us an email at Fanti at MaximumFun.org. Um, our music is done by Corey's. You can find him wherever you get your slay-worthy audio. That is C-O-R dot E-C-E. Our graphics are by Ashley Nguyen, who did our photos and our videos and all that cool stuff. So thank you to her. Our producers. <clears throat> you right? Yes. Our producer this week is Jordan Kelly. Uchi wali wali. Uchi bang bang. Uchi wali wali. Uchi bang bang. And Laura Swisher. <laughs> Uchi wali wali. Bang Uchi bang. bang bang. Uchi wali wali. This is a production <laughs> of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported. That was the fastest show opener we have ever done. Baby. I love I was to looking see at that it. clap. <laughs>